the afternoon of Saturday, August 17th, an unassuming maths teacher and a military general made history in Sudan. They stood side by side, arms raised, branching a newly signed agreement that will chart the course of the country towards democracy. The document lays out how, over the next 39 months, a group of technocrats put forward by the alliance of protest movements and generals named by the army will work to rebuild the country after a 30-year dictatorship. On the streets, people chanted, cheered and partied. But probably the most striking visible reminder of the change taking place in Sudan came two days later on Monday. Omar al-Bashir, the man who took control in a coup over 30 years ago and ruled with an iron fist as the country stagnated and crumbled, stood head-bowed in a courtroom near Khartoum. He listened from a cage as lawyers laid out the opening arguments in a case against him. He is charged with illegally possessing foreign currency and accepting gifts. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young, and this week we're looking at the future of Sudan. Back in May, we discussed the situation in Sudan with the National's Cairo correspondent, Hamza Hendewi, who was on the ground in the aftermath of Omar Bashir being forced from office. If you've not heard that episode yet, there's a link in the show notes. This week, Hamza's back in Khartoum. I lived in Sudan for three and a half years back in the 1980s. Nearly 40 years later, the streets of Sudan are almost exactly as I remember them back then. It looks like 30 years of Bashir rule has done nothing or very, very little, if at all, to improve the lives of the Sudanese. We had a a constant drizzle in Khartoum uh, overnight, and and the streets today are muddied with with all the massive potholes on the streets now filled with murky water. Uh, Mosquitoes are everywhere. The uh, traffic is chaotic and congested. A lot of people are out on the streets as usual, but you feel like everyone is hustling to survive in the markets. People are selling little insignificant things for little insignificant profit. Uh, people are still talking about it. They, they, the, the magic word in Khartoum today is Madaniya, civilian, meaning a civilian government away from military dictatorship. And the newspapers are filled with upbeat, positive articles about the future. I'm happy for the Sudanese that they've they had a break from from years, decades of misery, but I'm also a little cautious as what the uh, future may have in store for everyone in this in this country. We'll catch up with Hamza again later in the episode to hear what he sees as the challenges ahead for Sudan. We'll also speak to Sarah Abdul-Jalil, a spokeswoman for the Sudanese Professionals Association, one of the leading umbrella groups that organised the protests. She's based in London, but has been active with the group. She'll tell us her view of the weekend signing ceremony, as well as her hopes and concerns for the future. But first, let's recap the last few months. In December, protests sparked by the sudden rise in prices of basic goods and shortages quickly evolved into calls for political change. Despite attacks from elements of the security services, arrests of activists and attempts to crack down on the growing rallies, people continued protesting. For four months, the size of the rallies grew until hundreds of thousands of protesters were taken to the streets in April. They were watched on by the army, who made it clear they were not going to intervene if the embattled Omar al-Bashir ordered them to do so. Then on April 11th, the army said enough was enough, and they moved in to remove al-Bashir, arresting him and several of his family members, dissolving the government and announcing a ruling military council to lead the country until there were elections 
for civilian rule. It was around that time that we last spoke to Hamza in Sudan. So over the next four months, the unions and groups that rose to prominence as organisers of the mass rallies jostled with the generals about governance of the country. It all revolved around the question of a military-led or a civilian-led transition. At first, the military pushed for prominence, attempting to sideline the protest leaders, who responded by bringing millions out into the streets in general strike. The impasse, with the help of outside mediation from Ethiopia and the African Union, among others, gave way to a compromise. The 18-page document signed on August 17th by school teacher and protest leader Ahmed Rabia and the deputy head of the military council, General Mohamed Dagalo, was the product of that compromise. It forms an 11-member council to act as a collective presidency. Ten places will be split equally between the generals and civilians, and the final position will be a consensus candidate picked by both sides. A military figure will lead the council for 21 months, and then a civilian for the remaining 18 months. After that, there'll be an election. Until then, a 300-seat legislature will be appointed. 200 seats will be assigned to the main protest groups, the remaining 100 to other unions, political parties and prominent figures. The document is also progressive when it comes to the participation of women. In a region where few legislatures have many female lawmakers, the new agreement stipulates that at least 40% of the 300 seats will be held by women. This, Sarah says, is partly due to the role that women played in the protests. On the streets, on the um, neighborhood co- committees, um, the women were there spontaneously and naturally. And that reflects the truth about where we stand in our community. We don't need invitation. We don't need approval. We don't need anybody to guide us. They were there side by side to men. But when you come to the institutions, women are not uh, visible as uh, we wish. And as I said, we need to work on that and not wait for men to determine this. Uh, we should be as well proactive. But I would like to say it's not a fight between men and women in Sudan. But we ourselves have to determine what should we do and make sure that there are um, legislation and there are systems uh, that will promote women. One particular image from the final weeks of the protests went viral. A woman atop a car in Khartoum, leading the chants. The white cloth that she had looped over her head is a dress traditionally worn by professional women in Sudan. The image, for many who'd seen the protest for the first time, seemed to encapsulate the simple message of ordinary people standing up to a long-time dictator. And now that key role that women played in the protests is being recognised. So the minimal quota is 40%, uh, which is a good start, um, that there is um, um, a level that we should work towards and build on it. There is a, a very um, obvious mismatch between the uh, presence of women on the streets and between the absence of women in the institutions, whether they're political, civil societies, or even unions. As women, we have to be proactive and support each other. Uh, we have to work very hard because in the last 30 years, Uh, Women were either invisible or pushed away, or if they were visible, they were just there um, because they were loyal to the regime. Um, So I think we have a long way to go, and we have to find a tool to make sure that there is a gender-balanced representation. The agreement is a major milestone for the country, racked by a dictatorship for 30 years. But the job's not done. The country faces huge obstacles, not least the dire economic situation, the elements of an entrenched old regime 
and the still raging conflicts in several areas of the country. There's also the fact that since independence in 1956, Sudan has been in a vicious cycle of military dictatorships and freely elected governments. Both failed to bring peace to the country, establish a stable political system, or lay the foundations for a functioning economy. So no one is being complacent, and this time they want something different. I don't think anybody in Sudan has lost sight of the magnitude of the challenges ahead. However, it was to be expected that on a day like Saturday when the agreement was finally signed, that gave everyone reason to be happy and to celebrate on the streets and to wave the Sudanese flag and to be optimistic. But I think most of the people who went out on the streets also realized that the road ahead is fraught with so many challenges, some of them are seemingly insurmountable. We are talking about a country that had already lost a third of its territory nearly a decade ago. And I'm talking about the secession of the South after a war that lasted there for more than 20 years. And that came after another war that lasted more than one decade. Now, what do we have in Sudan now? And that is very important, and that's what both sides have pledged to focus on in the next six months. The issue of the political and ethnic conflicts in Sudan is significant. Some of those who took up arms against the state have criticised the protesters and the military for meeting in Khartoum to decide the country's future without them. But the agreement signed on August 17 sets aside the first six months to trying to resolve these conflicts. What we have now is a conflict in Darfur, and a conflict in the Nuba Mountains, and we have a conflict in the Blue Nile. Now, these people who have decided to take up, arm, take up arms against the government, what they want, or if their demands are met, the whole political system, the dynamics of any Khartoum government, must change to accommodate these demands, like citizenship, uh, like an equal share of national uh, resources, as an end of marginalization. And also, they would probably be demanding that as a total separation between religion and politics. Now, there's also the question of Sudan restoring its foreign relations. But I think the economy and resolving armed conflicts in the country are the two top priorities for government. This will be a major issue, and one that could, Hamza says, bring down the government if agreements aren't made to end the fighting. While the military and civilian council are working together, there's still a lot of mistrust. Many of the men in uniform now sitting around the table have been there a long time. Even if their actions finally removed al-Bashir from office, they will now have a hand in trying to end the conflicts that they fought under him, and to fix the economy he helped destroy. There's also the lingering question of an inquiry into the events on June 3rd, when security forces moved to clear a massive sit-in outside the defence ministry, targeting what they said were criminal elements. In the violence, over 100 civilians were killed. Now, protest leaders want to know who's responsible. Even with the political agreement, there's a lot at stake and plenty of potholes that could derail the deal. It's a question of how the military and opposition leaders can actually coexist. It promises to be an awkward relationship that will, Sudan will have to endure, and it will require a great deal of wisdom patience for this country to arrive safely at the designated date of November 2022, when it will become a fully civilian and democratically elected government. It is difficult to to predict with any precision what will happen comes November 
2022. We have 39 months to go, and it's a long, long time for a country like Sudan when anything can happen. Democratic governments in Sudan have always proved to be short-lived, while military dictatorships lasted a lot longer. Both camps failed to put this country forward. Both of them failed to bring about peace or economic prosperity or even a stable political system. But at the end of the day, I think the majority of the people of Sudan might have learned the lesson. I think their representatives will do everything they can to keep the military on board until November 2022. Any attempt to humiliate the military, any attempt to uh, to belittle the military or sideline them will, will bring a backlash from, from the military. Tsar says despite the push by protesters for a full civilian government, the compromise with the military was necessary. The issues at stake are huge and the risks from within and without are very real. Protesters and the military are in agreement, though, that the remnants of the old regime, from the high-ranking officials to the low-level bureaucrats, must be addressed. What we hope that we have an executive council who will be able to work despite, you know, that the regime still is not dismantled and be able to dismantle uh, the regime in a way that is stable. We would like to make sure that the state council is just an honour council that will not lead the country because there are military officers, uh, you know, who have not been fighting for uh, military officers to come and rule Sudan again. But Sarah says it's not about punishing those that work for al-Bashir, as that could divide the country. I don't think people are talking about revenge. And there are different levels of responsibility. There are senior levels, there are middle and there are lower ranks. Definitely the, the door is open for anybody to come and, you know, claim if they have been, um, you know, there have been any sort of uh, violation. And that will, should must be investigated. So that's general. But there are some investigations that must take place for the senior ranks. Uh, and there must be accountability for those who were in power and were responsible and were the leaders. And there must be um, a level, as I said, of tolerance and of rehabilitation and reconciliation. But that will be for the middle and the lower ranks. But that, she says, doesn't extend to al-Bashir himself. For the wars in Darfur and elsewhere, he's wanted by the International Criminal Court in The Hague. But there's a reluctance amongst the military to extradite him, and they've said he will face trial at home, a process that began on August 19th. There are two or three opinions about what should happen to Omar al-Bashir, whether he should continue on this national trial. Uh, But do we have the independent legal system? No, not yet. We are rebuilding that. The second opinion is to have the ICC in Sudan for the trial of Omar al-Bashir, which seems a reasonable suggestion, because we need, while we're rebuilding an independent legal system, that we start um, uh, the trial. The third is whether Omar al-Bashir should go to Lahai for um, the um, sort of investigation and trial. Whatever happens, he has to... Um, be investigated, um, but this investigation has to be monitored. But there's also the issue that justice and reconciliation means very different things to different people. Keeping that conversation going will be a challenge when groups around the country are already carrying arms against the state. Political pragmatism will have to lead 
the way. It will have to be at the forefront of the mind of those who will rule this country for the next three years. Political pragmatism is something that is possibly divorced from the people who lost brothers, sisters, fathers, and mothers in years and years and years of wars. It may not be the same for the people who have lived or act out an existence in refugee camps, in the squalor of refugee camps for years and years. We are talking about many lost generations in Sudan. How can you sell the idea of reconciliation to them? How are you going to organize the repatriation to their homes in Darfur, Kurdistan, and the Blue Line? But there's one thing, Hamza says, that's very present in everybody's minds. Eight years after the start of the Syrian and Libyan conflicts, and five years after the start of the Yemen war, people are very conscious about the risks of instability. I think they've had it on their minds from, from day one. They want civilian rule. I also believe in everybody I spoke to mentioned that to me. They, they, they've always wanted to make sure that Sudan doesn't go the way Libya, Syria, or Yemen have, uh, have gone. And I think so far, they have succeeded. So far, they have steered clear from the mistakes that would push the country into that fate. But it is very, very important that they should negotiate in good faith with the rebels in the west and south of Sudan. Uh, there is a lot of disenchantment and feeling of disenfranchisement by the people who are living there. And these are people who have already decided to take up arms against the government. And they need to be disarmed. And they need to be persuaded to come to the negotiating table. They need to be made to feel that they are part of this process. Nearly eight months after protesters first took to the streets to demand the end of Omar Bashir's rule, Sudan has taken a major step towards a democratic future. The challenges ahead are significant. From bread lines and shortages to armed conflicts and the shape of a civilian government. I always describe uh, what we are doing as being on a cave and we are trying, we're coming out from this cave. So we need a time for rehabilitation and we need time to try and accommodate even our vision to light after we've been in the darkness for 30 years. This process is going to take time, but people are committed. But Hamza says he, like many in the country, is cautiously optimistic. This is the right time for everyone to sit around the table and discuss the future of a united, harmonious and inclusive Sudan. I cannot think of a better time. This upbeat mood, this, this euphoria over a brighter future for Sudan after it had endured its darkest chapter. I am cautiously optimistic. But like I said, let's wait and see. Maybe we should revisit this six months from now. We will by then have a pretty good idea of how things are going and what is working and what's not working and who is betraying the trust of the Sudanese people and who is living to the world that they put their signature on. Thanks this week to Hamza Hendewi in Khartoum and Sarah Abdul-Jalil in London. To hear more, tap the subscribe button in your podcast app to get all the latest from Beyond the Headlines. And check out more of our coverage on thenational.ae. We were produced this week by Arthur Edison with assistance from Hannah Finity. I've been your host, James Haynes-Young.